Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. Happy New Year to you all. Seems like it's going to be a really easy year without any stress or anything. And in that vein today, we are going to talk about the hellscape that is Australia, focusing on how insurance companies operate within the new normal of increasing global disasters. And then Andrew Young joins us to give a quick take on social media and the 2020 U.S. elections. You see, like I said, stress-free. Thanks for joining us as always. Stay tuned. Australia has been battling devastating wildfires throughout the southeast region of the country where most of the population lives, which have been spurred on by record heat and drought in the region. Millions of acres of land has been burned, millions of animals have been killed, thousands of homes have been destroyed. It's the worst fire season in Australia in 20 years. It's an all-around mess. Before this call, I spoke to Morgan Ellis. He's one of our ESG analysts in Sydney, Australia, and he was telling me the city is battling water restrictions, an epic amount of smoke, a difficulty of traveling out of the city, and the knowledge that no meaningful rainfall is likely to happen for another month. But once the devastation has been wrought, the world will continue to turn and communities will have to rebuild, often with the help of insurance claims. And that is what we are going to talk about today, the physical risk that plagues cities and the companies that make it their business to be part of that aftermath. Jillian Malad joins us to talk about the physical risk portion and then our insurance guru, Chris Vernon, and Aussie himself, which, who's actually based in London, joins us to discuss the insurance industry. But before we get into that, I want to do a quick stat card. Remember, part of our responsibility at MSCI ESG Research is to rank companies based on their exposure to environmental, social, and governance risks on a triple C to triple A scale. And for our stat card today, I want to highlight Swiss Re. Swiss Re is one of the largest insurers in the world, and we rank the company as a triple A because it has a strong culture of risk management, which includes researching and identifying the global risks that are created by climate change. And as an aside, with nothing to do with our rating, Swiss Re also releases great data such as telling us that natural disasters in 2017 and 2018 generated $219 billion in payouts worldwide. But before we get into what that means for an insurance company, to understand climate change risk in general, Jillian, I wanted to ask you briefly, and I wanted to talk to you because you had the mapping of our physical risks um, for companies. And a big part of physical risk analysis is understanding how much money is put toward defensive measures at certain companies and in certain communities, yeah, right? Well, you know, like, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's sort of more about, like, consider it's less about how much money is put towards that more just considering how 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 the community perceives their their risk and whether they're actively manning managing that risk so that's sort of one of the things that i think uh we, we don't we aren't seeing in australia right now there's no true active management of the fire hazard it's just an awareness of it and part of the reason that there is so much fire hazard right now in Australia is because of ex extreme temperatures and extremely dry conditions. And we're just going to see that get worse if, um, if carbon emissions continue unabated. And uh, one of the things that we're seeing in Australia is, is currently is a, is a government that's not really embracing climate change and not really um, taking it into consideration in their, in, in their strategies and just 
they're continuing on a business as usual path when they're um, an extremely high carbon em emitter. But there are some regions where governments are heavily investing in mitigative tech, right? Some fancy infrastructure to defend communities from these risks like flooding or, or wildfire. But I guess you should ask, does it change from disaster to disaster? Is Are there some disasters that are better to predict where they're going to happen than others? Well, I've been reading a lot. I've been reading a lot on um, on the physical hazards that are affecting affecting different areas. And, you know, wildfires are really scary one because um, it's very destructive and uh, it's not clear when a fire is going to start. And, and based on the conditions, so if the wind is blowing a certain way, if there's uh, a drought, if there's no rain, that's, we're, if we're not going to see rain for days, you know, how is that going to change the trajectory of the fire? We, we just don't know. And it's, it's totally unpredictable. Oh, well, that's, that's a big difference between like, you can kind of predict when flooding can happen, right? Yeah. So, well, you can kind of predict when flooding is going to happen. Yeah. And, and you know areas that are prone to floods and not prone to floods. So there are like clear floodplains. But with a wildfire, there's no clear path. It could take any any direction. I mean, there are areas, obviously, that are more prone to fire, We especially when you have um, – with a forest fire, you know, trees burn, and uh, if there's large swaths of forest and, and they're set on fire, we, we're pretty sure that the, the forest area is going to, that's the path it's going to follow. Um, but when there's houses that are, uh, they, in California, they, they call it the, the rural-urban interface. It's like right where houses are built right near forest land, and those are the, the houses that, um, especially with dry conditions, those are the houses that are most prone to... Um, to being destroyed. Speaking of destruction of property and livelihood by disaster, Chris Vernon is also here to walk us through the insurance industry. And actually, the insurance industry has an interesting history with climate change because it is one of the earliest sectors, and, and not including academics or NGOs or nonprofits or activists, that started to put out extremely robust data on the risks climate change poses to our economy. That's correct, right, Chris? Right. And they, and they had to be because it's, you know, part of their business to understand the real risks and they have actuaries and all these smart mathematicians that spend their days figuring out what are the likely rates of uh, cost um, to whatever assets it are, is that they're insuring. I guess one point to start with is to classify two different types of insurance. One is the property and casualty insurance, and that's the insurance of things and stuff. And then life and health insurance is the insurance of people and uh, disease and mortality and life insurance and those types of things. So insurance companies, just, just to do a layman description real quick, insurance companies take money from someone, that's your premium, and they technically guarantee that if something happens, the insurance company will pay out in an agreed upon amount. The industry is actually one of the only industries that can guarantee a return like that. And it's because they have a lot of robust data that maps out the risks they face and they set their premiums based on those risks. But Chris, as Jillian noted in the beginning of the talk, wildfires are not like floods. They are not like car accidents in that in aggregate wildfires are extremely unpredictable. So how does the insurance industry adapt to this unpredictability? Yeah, so depending on the type of insurance that they are offering, they, they'll widen their premiums if they have less uh, confidence in their modeling. 
So uh, you can think about other types of accidents that are it might seem random, like car accidents or uh, you know things that aren't necessarily related to weather patterns that you can model, but are nonetheless they've still got the statistics and the data to do back testing. And where the climate change research comes in is that all of that information of the past is not useful looking forward as to how frequently these events might occur going forward. And the insurers, I wouldn't say, have a strong idea of. Uh, where the portfolio might be uh, more at risk specifically in terms of you know, which town or which group of insured assets, but they would have an idea over the whole portfolio what their losses are looking at. And I actually just looked up some information. There's already been 8,200 claims and about $650 million worth of claims have been lodged already, according to the Insurance Council of Australia. Um, and it's that is all from the property and casualty side. And those numbers are... So similar to what we were talking about with the Californian fires, but they're still happening. So you know, we have no idea how big they're going to get. Uh, the difference, I guess, from a company perspective, what I find a bit interesting as opposed to California, was that there was liability for the Californians, those utility companies that, you know, the power lines that fell that caused the fires. That is not the case in Australia. In, this, in Australia, this, the whole country is burning and it's much more related to the um, longer drought seasons, the dry land, the increased temperature, which makes them more susceptible now to uh, natural wildfires. Yeah, well, actually, the Australian Government Bureau of Meteorology noted that 2019 was both the hottest year in record in history for Australia, and it was the driest. And these fires are some of the largest since 1974. Uh, all this record-breaking statistics, when insurance companies enter this into their their risk models how does it sway them um does do they move toward higher levels entirely as as an average would be swayed by a very large outlier yes absolutely this is just a live data point on what they've been modeling and they, they you know their current models will be looking 10 20 30 40 years out uh, the advantage that the insurers have whenever we speak to them from a, a issuer point of view in terms of our esg ratings when we say, oh, you're exposed to regions that are more climate sensitive than others, what are you doing about it? Uh, often the response is, oh, we've only got a one-year contract on our premiums. So if we've determined that the risk has moved from the medium-term bucket to the right-now bucket, we can just price the premiums out. And so then the whole corporate social responsibility message that they're pushing to ensure the world and protect the worlds that they claim is not true because as soon as it gets too expensive to do so, they'll, they'll leave. And we've seen that in other examples with insurance, uh, particularly cyclone activity area up the north of Australia. Uh, insurance companies maybe mispriced the risk initially when they were first gave the premiums and now they are exorbitantly expensive because there's so many houses have been hit and the government has had to step in and fund the difference between the previous premiums that the customers signed up for and the new premiums which is still you know basically paying the insurers for mispricing that risk yeah i guess that's an interesting rebuke uh of the sustainability of free market capitalism right now because climate change is creating a situation where the accurate pricing of anything becomes difficult unless you have good data like at uh, MSCI ESG Research. Anyway, most if not all companies are insured in one way or another. Are there any industries that you see that are more risky for insurance companies because of uh, disasters like wildfire? So for example, Kangaroo Island, um uh, one of the plantation uh, timber companies told the Australian Stock Exchange that about 90% of its timber was affected by the fire, which burned a third of the island. 
So those that obviously the insurance company that's insuring that com- that timber company, uh, there's a there's a real concern there, and, and that's so this is what we mean, and important to differentiate the two types of risks from climate change. One being the physical risks and the other being the transition risk. With regards to the transition risk and how that is affected by physical risk, do you think there is a future where insurance companies set up a new normal where the industry says, if you don't have a building that meets our green or, or climate resilient standards, you just aren't going to get insurance, period? It, it could well do. I mean, I think it, it already exists, to be honest. I think it, it, they might not say we will not insure, and insurance companies would never really say that, but they just say it's going to be expensive. <laughs> and then, so, but it basically means it's uninsurable because why would you, you know, spend all that exorbitant amount of money um, when you might just take the risk yourself or, or protect your home yourself? So, how does that affect investors that are actually investing in these insurance companies? Do they look for the type of insurance companies that are proactively addressing this, or do they look for the ones that are doing the short term? Um, not really long-term view, or, but just a mitigated procedure where it's like, well, we're going to have month-to-month contracts, basically. Um, so different investors will take a different view. Those that are long-term investors that are buying companies that they hope to hold over that long term, they're absolutely looking in detail at the way the company is mitigating its exposures that it has. Uh, one of the challenges is understanding um, from an investor point of view, looking at an individual insurer, where their insured assets actually are. Often they'll disclose their revenue generation, maybe at the country level, maybe at the state level, but they don't actually say we insure these types of houses on this shoreline. And that's what you need to know to be able to do strong analytics on these companies to understand which insurers are more or less exposed than others. So it's it's a challenge. And instead, you need to rely on their own modeling and similar to responsible investment and understanding which investors are responsible investors, that you can look at which insurers are being responsible insurers. And there's a lot of, particularly the reinsurers, so they, they are the ones that insure the insurance companies and they're usually globally based and they sort of risk pool around the world. Uh, they are the, at the forefront of climate change modeling and a lot of them have got fantastic research out there that shows so your Zurichs and Swiss Re's and Munich Re's uh, the European companies that do that, they um, use that actuarial researching that they're doing to obviously mitigate the risks in their portfolio, but then also inform their um, insurance salesmen you know, where to be directing their um, mitigation efforts. Some of them are developing products that have inbuilt resilience mechanisms. So for example, you will have a reduction on the premium of your home and contents insurance if you climate-proof your home. And that will, might mean, you know, making clearing out the gutters. Uh, so for, for fires and things, there's things that you can do around your house to make them more fireproof. Um, not having you know, leaves on the roofs and uh, sprinkler systems installed and things like that. And you know, that that's a win-win from in terms of mitigating the physical risk, but then also the financial risk uh, for the insurer long term. We also look at lobbying, and this is kind of the last question I'll have. Does do insurance companies? Are they trying to work more with governments by saying, uh, we want to insure these areas, but it's going to become so expensive for us that we're not going to be able to do it. You need to set policies in place to be able to make up the windfall when we leave or we're unable to insure areas. Do, do you see that? Do you see some that are responsibly doing it, some that are doing it less uh, in a less coordinated fashion, or is it just kind of not seen? Because I'm thinking about what happened in California, where after the massive fires that happened last year, in December of 2019, the government banned the practice of canceling people's policies in fire-prone parts of the state for up to a year. So it seems like insurance companies, as these disasters continue, 
would want to sway the conversation in whatever fashion possible? I think in general, it's reactive from the insurers. They, it's only once the government finds a problem and there's a disaster that, and then they are found to have to pay out of pocket for the difference that they'll then institute a policy so that that doesn't happen again. Um, the reinsurers definitely engage at a um, sort of quasi-government level with, with the World Bank and some of the European institutions about how, do we, how can we progress this and move it forward together. Uh, but the problem is that the policies are all done at the local level. So that, that disconnect then happens about what that looks like in practice. Uh, but the lobbying is definitely there because they do not want to be blindsided by what you described in California, where the government actually says you must maintain your uh, premiums at these levels. Um, and so now they're, they're ensuring a risk for less than the size of that risk, which is a big no-no for an insurance company. And now for a section called Election 2020, or how I learned to stop worrying and love social media. Facebook announced that it would not bow to pressure and it wouldn't take down political ads with misleading information, but it would take down deep fakes. The art of splicing video images of a person to make it look like someone said something they actually didn't say. Those deep fakes that were created by AI though, Facebook would take down. This is in opposition to Twitter that banned all such advertising, that is political ads that are misleading, and Google adopted tighter rules in general. So Andrew Young, our Facebook analyst, joins me to give a quick take on this Facebook intransigence. Andrew, do you think Facebook is going to do anything to try and head off the problems they had in 2016 and beyond? Such as saying something like, well, we aren't going to do anything, but here's a roadmap for what happened in 2016. And so here is what could happen this year. Here is what you should look out for, like a fake news roadmap of sorts or an education campaign. Yeah. Okay. So I think you've, you've actually hit on a very uh, important point, and it's something that we wrote about last year when we talk about this topic of disinformation or more broadly what we call content integrity and that's around media and internet literacy now these companies uh, we found the industry as a whole really does not um, we, we, do, we find it does not provide sufficient um, literacy educational um, materials so consumers don't have the tools to understand what they're looking at or what they're reading and the quality, uh, uh, the veracity of that um, data. So um, that is something that they should be doing and that they're not doing. Um, and because they're not doing it, I think you will see for the rest of the year, especially with the American elections coming up, um, that this uh, trend of misinformation and disinformation is going to continue. They're going to continue facing scrutiny, but, uh, but of course the, the election's going to go ahead as normal. Um, and then maybe after the election, we're going to have another scandal like uh, like Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, it seems like it's probably going to be a situation where a company with a bunch of minds says, well, we promise none of them are going to break, but we haven't actually implemented a policy to prevent their breaking. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Happy 2020. Thanks, Mike. And thank you all for joining us for the first episode of 2020. Keep a lookout throughout the year as we continue to release new ESG-related content. It's going to be a great year. I can just feel it. And be on the lookout for our trends paper that is coming out soon. That's always fun to read, and it layouts some of our thoughts for the coming year. 
Thanks to Jillian, Chris, and Andrew for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. And as always, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. Talk to you next week. Have a good one. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.